workshop in context. This workshop's about the territory of love, um, kindness, compassion, and uh, a very interesting topic toward the afternoon, the integration of kindness and assertiveness. It's fairly direct or fairly straightforward to be loving and nice to other people. It's also fairly straightforward, it may not be easy, but it's fairly straightforward to be strong, assertive, you know, with other people. The trick is to do both. What's the intersection of those two circles? Kindness and assertiveness, right? Heart and strength. And so we're going to get into that territory in the afternoon. So this is a pretty big collection of topics, and I want to begin by grounding it in uh, the Buddhist Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. So, and by the way, also, we're going to be recording uh, these, uh, some, some of my talks and the guided practices here. We won't be recording your voices. And these will be posted on Dharma Seed and freely offered from dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A, seed.org. And um, hopefully uh, I'll remember to do this. Uh, I'll let you know that link as well. But Dharma Seed is fantastic. It's freely offered, tons of teachings, tons of teachers, and these talks should be posted there within a week or so. Okay, great. So, this is a, a classic quote uh, from uh, the Buddha Dharma. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin. He was his primary companion uh, during a lot of uh, the Buddha's teaching career. And Ananda approaches the Buddha here and says, Venerable Sir, this, pointing to the community of, of monks, which later on included, of course, the, the nuns, and by extension, uh, lay practitioners as well. So Ananda points to the community of practitioners and says, Venerable Sir, this is half of the spiritual life. Good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. Not so, Ananda. Not so, Ananda, the Buddha replied. This is the entire spiritual life. When you have a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that you will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Really pretty powerful statement. This is the whole of the spiritual life. Relatedness is the whole of the spiritual life. It's both a field of practice and a resource for practice. And interestingly, recent scholarship has indicated that the Buddha made it really clear that the path of relationship, the path of love, broadly defined, was a wholly sufficient path of practice if taken to the nth degree. That's an extraordinary statement to make. And um, it's in that context, of course, that we're doing this workshop here. Now, as we are here, we're going to be relating to other people here. You know, walking in and out, waiting for the bathroom, um, you know, seeing other people, looking them in the eyes. And so by extension as well, this sense of community that will develop over the day here can be both a field of practice for us and a resource for practice too. Okay. Then there's another famous um, uh, teaching from the Buddha. This is the Loving Kindness Sutta, the Metta Sutta, which I've slightly uh, abbreviated. This is the abridged version. This is the Reader's Digest version that I could get into one single slide. So it's quite well known. I'll read it out loud here. 
um, and it grounds uh, what we're doing here today. So wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Omitting none, whether they are weak or strong, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I was in a retreat once, and Sylvia Borstein, a legendary spirit rock teacher, said, you know, a a nice practice is to take a look at that sutta, also called a sutra in Sanskrit. Sutta is Pali, the uh, language of the earliest surviving written record of the Buddha's teachings. Uh, She said, take a look at that, and is there a word or phrase that really pops out for you? You know, that's a takeaway, a big takeaway for you. So you might want to take a look at that sutta. And, you know, if you have, quote unquote, just one thing, you know, to kind of keep in mind, what's that one thing that, uh, I'm sorry? Oh, what's that one thing that is going to be really particularly useful for you? You A friend of mine, uh, his phrase was omitting none. And that's definitely something that I've tried to keep in mind. And also to point out that hatred and ill will uh, are traditional kind of words. You know, they sound pretty intense. Uh, But they really are meant to encompass a wide range of things, a lot of subtleties. And um, so, for example, one form of ill will is a subtle kind of, um, you know, thinking that you're better from others, better than others, rather or a subtle kind of exasperation with others, or irritation, or annoyance, or even a sort of criticism. You know, that's in the territory that the Buddha is talking about here. Sure, one extension is, you know, treating people horribly, killing them, for example. That's one extreme form of hatred and ill will. But a lot of the territory that the Buddha is getting at is that subtle you know, of everyday life. I think back on, you know, the saying from the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. I think, I swear, I think of him doing the cigarette thing, you know. So he says, hell is other people. You know, it's that territory, the kind of grinding with other people we live with, work with, sleep with, grew up with, or think about worldwide. Um, You know, that's the territory here as well. So what's it like to omit none? Uh, from our considerations, even those that we are competing with or disagreeing with or needing to protect ourselves from or assert ourselves toward or whose politics we think are dreadful, you know, even them, for example, how do we include them in this consideration? Okay. And then in terms of generosity, uh, the Buddha made a major emphasis on generosity as a very down-to-earth foundation for practice. And uh, Spirit Rock, for example, a third of the lights in this room are on 
through the generosity of donors over the year, you know, to Spirit Rock every year. Uh, the generosity of the staff here, the volunteers here, uh, the generosity of the Buddha, the generosity of 2,500 years of unbroken uh, lineage of teaching. These are, you know, expressions of generosity. Uh, in America and the West in general, we tend to monetize generosity. We tend to commercialize it, you know, and okay, there's a place for writing a check to our favorite charity, you know, I do that and so forth. But most forms of generosity are not tangible. They're certainly not commercial. Attention, like I'm already experiencing your generosity in giving me your attention. You know, sincerity of practice is a form of generosity. Restraint is a form of generosity. You know, the impulse to interrupt uh, another person and restraining that impulse, uh, to let them have their moment and complete their thought, to give them the gift of our complete attention for 90 seconds in a row, OMG, you know. Um, that's a form of generosity, and those count. A touch, a word of kindness, um, patience, encouragement, seeing the good in the other person, seeing the being behind the eyes. These are all incredibly important forms of generosity that make a really big difference in the world. The fabric of human culture, in many ways, is knitted together by threads of generosity, uh, particularly un- um, unbig deal generosity, you know, not super duper special generosity. That's what knits us all together. So as the Buddha says here, if people knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given. Nor would they allow the stain of niggardliness or stinginess, that's the, the meaning of that word, to obsess them and root in their minds. Even if it were their last morsel, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it if there were someone to share it with. Humans are not ants, although ants share food you know, with each other. Uh, humans are the most social species on the planet. And food sharing, uh, as well as other forms of generosity, is deep, 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 deep in our nature. So in a little bit, I'll be exploring um, how uh, the power of love has really shaped human evolution especially the evolution of the brain. But you can really see here in this uh, picture, uh, you know, in which there's a sharing of food, right, that's being uh, worked out, that sharing and giving and cooperating with each other is deep, 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 deep in our nature. Okay. So, a kind of context, all right? And then next I want to talk about the notion of a natural mind and what it means to take this ancient tradition that emerged, Buddhism, in a pre-literate culture. There was essentially no writing in northern India 2,500 years ago other than generally stuff that was used for tax records because, of course, you know, follow the money, right? We have to keep a record of that stuff. Generally speaking, um, this was a pre-literate tradition that Buddhism arose out of, an agrarian tradition. There's tremendous emphasis on the language of agriculture in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, ancient teachings of the Buddha himself um, and his close companions and the stream that followed that over the next several centuries. Uh, so in that culture, they didn't know about the brain. They didn't have MRIs. They didn't know about DNA. They didn't know, um, you know, how the body worked to produce consciousness, to produce awareness for cats and lizards and mice, as well as for human beings. What does it mean today 
to take this ancient tradition and to not reduce it to the mind in some kind of reductionistic, simplistic, overly scientifically materialistic way that robs it of its majesty, but rather grounds mind in life in a way that, in, if anything, for me at least, deepens the awe um, factor and also takes us into something useful. So that's what I'd like to talk about here and then see what you think about this. All right? Okay. So apart from the hypothetical influence of some transcendental X factor, God, spirit, the ground, the mystery, the nameless, other than that, other than that, whatever is outside, for we're inside the natural frame. Now the natural frame includes create wild stuff, quarks, dark energy, um, you know, DNA, little molecular machines doing amazing little tiny things, quantum foam, the Big Bang itself, the whole universe is bubbled out of nothing. What? Right? That's inside the natural frame. So inside the natural frame, awareness and unconsciousness, mindfulness, delusion, uh, traditional Buddhist factors like suffering, uh, craving, uh, or factors of awakening like tranquility, concentration, investigation, mindfulness, effort, energy, uh, equanimity, and so forth, must fundamentally be natural processes. They may not be well understood. In the time of Copernicus or the century after, educated people, let's say, uh, in, around the world, uh, presumed that the earth went around the sun. Right? Nobody knew how that happened, but they were clear it wasn't God's finger pushing the earth around the sun. Right? It was due to a natural, it was natural. It was due to natural causes. Then it took Wright Newton a couple hundred years later to figure out the laws of gravity, and then another few hundred years later for Einstein to come along and explain that mass bends space-time, so the Earth wobbles around the sun like a marble going around a sink. You know, what? But that's still a natural process, right? So even though it's a natural process, we may not completely understand it. It's said in science that there are three great mysteries. One is, why is there something rather than nothing? What caused the Big Bang? Nobody knows. Second is, what's the explanation of everything, the so-called Grand Unified Theory? I love the acronym GUT, G-U-T, Grand Unified Theory, right? That puts together general relativity, a theory of gravity on the one hand, and quantum mechanics on the other that are very powerful and coherent and explanatory inside their silos, but at their roots seem to contradict each other. What pulls it all together? What's the theory of everything? Nobody yet knows. And the other great mystery in science is, how are we doing this right now? How are we feeling what we're feeling, seeing what we're seeing, hearing what we're hearing, uh, hoping, dreaming, suffering, enjoying, and so forth? How do we experience the color red, the so-called qualia of the color red? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yet it's increasingly clear, as you'll see shortly, that mental activity, including portion of mental activity that is conscious experience, including the color red or a feeling of subtle sorrow or awkwardness with our teenage child who's growing away from us, or a sense of sadness when we think about um, our own childhood, or the pleasure we experience when we look at someone who's happy and we're happy that they're happy. You know, It's presumed that that kind of mental activity requires underlying neural activity. Right? And as we'll see soon, repeated patterns of neural activity 
mapping to repeated patterns of mental activity can leave lasting changes in neural structure for better or worse. So in this context then, as I just said, mental activity entails neural activity. Repeated mental activity entails repeated neural activity. And repeated neural activity builds neural structure. It's a fundamental idea. The brain learns. This is learning in a nutshell. This is growth. This is change. This is learning. The path of awakening, whether it's down in the lower plains or the foothills or the mountains or even all the way to the very tippity top, you know, maybe what happens at the tippity top in terms of nirvana is outside the natural frame. That's the way the Buddha described it, and that's my own sense. And I'm a transcendentalist. I think there is an X factor outside the natural frame woven into the nature of things. But inside this workshop, I'm going to stay inside the natural frame. All right? People are going to push me outside the natural frame. You watch me squirm as I get close to the boundaries. I'm going to try to stay inside the natural frame. Okay, so where I was going was that that path from the, you know, the dusty plains where we're miserable and we don't even know that we're miserable or why we're miserable, but we're definitely miserable and we're causing misery for others, right? Um, all the way up to the tippity tip top or the edge of the tippity tip top, you know, that's a process of learning, right? If we grow in practice, if we suffer less, if we become more mindful, if we deepen an inside, if we become kinder, if we become more compassionate, if we have more love for other people, if we have more love for ourselves, we're changing over time. In the natural frame, that change in the mind must mean change in the brain. So as we'll be moving, how do we get good changes going in the brain to help the mind, to help all beings? Okay. So in the classic saying from neuroscience, neurons that fire together wire together, right? Um, they do so in lots and lots of different kinds of ways. And this will be the frame here for what we'll be exploring. How in the world do we get good things going in the mind to change the brain for the better, to change the mind for the better as well? Okay, so I'll pause. Any comments or questions? So far we could stop the recording here uh, about what I've just kind of laid out as a framework.